tonight, go ahead and turn your Bible. We're going to be in 2 Samuel 12, chapter number 12. And you say, well, I didn't bring my Bible tonight. That's all right. I'm going to forgive you this one time for that. Please don't make that mistake again. But uh, I'm kidding. Uh, but if you don't have your Bible with you, go ahead and grab your phone. I know that you have a Bible on your phone, and if you don't, you can Google it. Make sure to Google KJV. 2 Samuel chapter number 12, verse number 1. We're going to read a rather long passage. I want you guys to stay with me tonight as we read this. And I'll be honest with you, before we start, I need you to pay utmost attention to this passage because you're going to have to remember everything that we study in this passage because I'm not coming back to it after right now. This is simply for context for a different passage that we're going to be diving into tonight. And I do trust that the Lord will bless us as we study His Word tonight. 2 Samuel chapter number 12, and in verse number 1, the Bible says, And the Lord sent Nathan unto David, and he came unto him, and said unto him, There were two men in one city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceeding many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing, save one little ewe lamb, which he had bought and nourished up. And it grew up together with him and with his children, he did eat of his own meat, and drank of his own cup, and lay in his bosom, and was unto him as a daughter. And there came a traveler unto the rich man, and he spared to take of his own flock, and of his own herd, to dress it for the wayfaring man that was come unto him. But he took the poor man's lamb, and dressed it for the man that was come to him. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold, because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. And Nathan said to David, in one of the most convicting passages of all time, Thou art the man. Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I anointed thee king over Israel, and I delivered thee out of the hand of Saul. And I gave thee thy master's house, and, I, and thy master's wives, and into thy bosom, and gave thee the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I moreover would have given unto thee such and such things. Wherefore hast thou despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and has taken his wife to be thy wife, and has slain him with the sword of the children of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from thine house, because thou hast despised me, and hast taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be thy wife. Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against thee out of thine own house, and I will take thy wives before thine eyes, and give them unto thy neighbor, and he shall lie with thy wives in the sight of this son. For thou didst it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the Son. And David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said unto David, the Lord, also hath, the Lord also hath put away thy sin, thou shalt not die. How be it? Because by this deed thou hast given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. The child also that thou... That is born unto thee shall surely die. Now, I know that was a long passage, and I appreciate you guys' attention as we read through it. Let me summarize in case you didn't pay attention. The story we're talking about is extremely familiar with everyone here. If you have grew up in church, then you've heard it, and it's been preached on. And tonight, I'm not going to preach a single word from this passage. This was simply for context. So for context's sake, David is supposed to be going to war. The Bible says that it was the time when kings go to war, and he chose not to. He stayed home. And 
from his rooftop, he looks out and he sees Bathsheba, and he, he asks who she is, and he tells her, this is Bathsheba, she's the wife of Uriah the Hittite, and he said, okay, cool deal, go get her and bring her on to me, I'd like to have a conversation with her, so they go, and they, they uh, bring Bathsheba, and then we know that in this passage, the man after God's own hope commits what is probably known as the most popular sin in the Bible, or at least one of the most popular sins in the Bible, and uh, David uh, commits a sin with Bathsheba. And then he begins to think, well, that was a major mistake because Uriah is married to her, but he schemes a great scheme, and he calls Uriah back, and he says, yo, Uriah, you're doing a great job out there in battle, and what I would love for you to do is just go spend some time with your wife, and uh, then you can go back to battle. And Uriah, out of honor for the men at war, says, well, I'm not going to do it. Uh, I'm going to sleep on the porch, and then I'm going back to war tomorrow. And David's like, well, hmm, I didn't go as planned. Uh, so, uh, okay, well, you got to do what you got to do. I've already made this mistake. And so he takes out his pen, and he writes Uriah's death certificate, basically. And then he hands it to Uriah, and he says, hey, got important information. When you get back, give this to Joab, and he's going to set you up. And Uriah says, okay. And like a good soldier, he takes it. He hands it to Joab. Joab reads it, okay. Leave Uriah stranded by the wall and let him die. Um, and so Joab goes into battle, and in the heat of the battle, he tells everyone, fall back. But Uriah the Hittite, he says, you stay up there. And in some act of courage, Uriah the Hittite did not fall back, and he didn't quit, but by himself stood in front of the wall, and he got shot down. David now filled with excitement, although Uriah died and he lost a good captain, not a big deal because the whole thing's covered and the whole thing is concealed. The whole sin is over. He real quick marries up Bathsheba and he's like, well, good. Look at what I've done. I pulled it off. No one will ever know. No one will ever see. And all the evidence is erased and onward forward we go. And then greatly to David's dismay, he gets a visit from Nathan the prophet. And when Nathan walks in, I guarantee you that David was like, mm, nah, that's impossible. I did a good job. He's like, yo, Nathan, what's up, man? Can I get you a drink or whatever? And Nathan's like, actually, no, dude, I came to tell you a story. And David's like, all right. And Nathan begins to tell this story. And as David listens, he begins to get infuriated. He's like, Nathan must have seen this happen, and I guarantee you one thing, I'm going to make this right. As king of Israel, something of this nature will not happen in my land. And then Nathan says, um, David, <clears throat> it's you, buddy. And he begins to tell David his punishment, and he reads down all the things that were to follow in David's life. And if we were to continue reading, for time I stopped there, we see that Nathan leaves. And David begins to beg for the child's life. But the Lord carries out the punishment, and the child dies. And if you read on through the life of David, and you're a student of the life of David, then you will see that, in fact, the whole punishment is carried out. The sword never departs from David's house. There are battles in the land of Israel. And everything that David as a king had tried to accomplish in this one punishment, shot down. And tonight, I want us to flip over to Psalms 51, where we'll be taking our message from. I love the way that the Bible complements itself. And what we read in Psalms 51 is a behind-the-scenes shot of David. When Nathan comes in and he says, this is the punishment and this is what's going to happen, here we have a snapshot where David writes down a prayer that he prayed to God. And I believe that looking at the prayer will not only show us ways that we should pray, but also teach us principles about how we should live as Christians. And I believe tonight, if we honestly look at the prayer of David in Psalms 51, then we'll be able to draw many applications and apply it to our own lives. Before we do, let's go to the Lord in a word of prayer, and then we'll dive into the message tonight. God, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for the completeness of your word, God, for the truth of your word, for the everlasting power of your word, God, and the fact that it is alive, and that, God, it, it's not 
it's not just a book, but God, I can downstairs teach it to the children. I can come upstairs and teach it to the adults. And God, I can live it out. And everyone around the world who believes in you, God, has the power to see your truth through this road. Tonight as we study it, may we, God, with all honesty and sincerity, come and study the word of God and see how it applies to us tonight. And not only to hear it, but to do it and to live it out and let us change us. And in Jesus' name, amen. Psalms 51, we see the prayer of David after Nathan the prophet had came in. Tonight I want to show you a few things about the prayer, and uh, typically I'd give you all my points right now, but there's so many of them, I'm not, I'm, there's only five. But I'm not going to give them to you right now. We're going to go through it in order, and we're going to see what God has for us. As you know, it is a prayer, and I want to break down the prayer. When David begins to pray this prayer in, in Psalms 51 in response to the story that we just read in 2 Samuel, the first thing I want to show you is that it's a prayer for pardon. It's a prayer for Poden. David says, okay, whoa, I made some mistakes here. And it is apparent now that God knows about it. And in Psalms 51, he begins to make a prayer for Poden. And I'm going to show you a couple things about this prayer for Poden where David begins to pray. First off, it was a prayer for mercy. As David begins to pray for Poden from this sin, he makes a prayer of mercy. Psalms 51, verse number one, I'll read it there with me. Have mercy upon me, O God according to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Nathan comes, hey, uh, David, you are the man. Here's your punishment. And immediately, David goes to the Lord in prayer and he says, God, have mercy on me. According to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy mercy, God, have mercy on me. When I look at the prayer of David, and I, and, I, and I contrast that with a lot of times my prayers, I feel that as Christians, a lot of times the mercy of God, because it is so well known, it often becomes expected. And we say, okay, uh, we, you'll hear people say things like, you can uh, first John 1, 9 it. You sin, eh, not a big deal, just ask for forgiveness and move on. It's, it's really not a big deal, just, uh, you know, ask for forgiveness. You can post John 1, 9, that, and it's not a big deal. And we, and we go forward like the mercy of God is almost owed because now we're a child of God. Most of the time, when it, if, if I was to sin, I would go to the Lord, and, and it, it would be a prayer something, not exactly, but it would look like God... Uh, I did such and such, and I'm sorry, and I repent for that. I pray you forgive me. And because I know that he will, a lot of times I, I completely leave off asking for mercy or according to the multitude that I mercy God, because you love me, I pray you would have mercy on me. It's as though I've forgotten that every sin makes me justifiably on my way to hell. If it was not for God, saving me, then justifiably, without his mercy, I could spend an eternity separated from God. And here David says, okay, I've made this mistake. And as he goes to the Lord and pray, the first thing he says, but before I pray for my poet and before I pray for anything else, God, have mercy upon me. According to thy loving kindness, according to the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgression. God, because I'm asking for mercy, 
I pray you would blot out my transgression. God, because you're merciful, because you love me, I pray that this transgression would be forgiven. It would do us good a lot of times when we go to the Lord in prayer to say, God, have mercy on me. I don't deserve this. What I deserve is an eternity away from you, and I know that. But God, because of mercy, I pray you forgive me. Let's not forget that God doesn't owe us forgiveness, but he chooses to give it to us. It was a prayer for mercy, but also it was a prayer of acknowledgement. It was a prayer of acknowledgement. Psalms 51, 3. For I acknowledge my transgression, and my sin is ever before me. Against thee, thee only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and be clear when thou judgest. David comes before God, and he doesn't make no excuse. He says, God, I acknowledge my transgression. My sin is ever before me. I, I know I've, I've sinned before thee, and, and thee only. Remember that, that David is a king, so... For him to say, ah, this person deserves to die was not uncommon in, in that time. David is a king. It was not uncommon for him to say, oh, um, and that was it. He could take whoever he wanted. He could kill whoever he wanted. In the kingdom of Israel, there was no one higher than David. And David says, God, before thee and thee only have I sinned. I acknowledge my sin. It's ever before me. I know what I've done wrong. A lot of times I feel that when it comes to all shortcomings, from the standard that God has for us and, and where we're actually living, where we're, where we're falling short in our sins, I feel that often, rather than acknowledging the sin, we acknowledge the reason for the sin and therefore justify it. Um, for instance, uh, let's say that I got annoyed and I said something that absolutely did not bring glory to God. And the sin is brought to my attention. You say, uh, hey, I heard you talking today, and that was really not a Christian way to handle that. I'd be like, well, I mean, I agree with you on that, but do you know how annoying they are? Like, for real. He has been pushing my buttons. Somebody had to say something. He can't keep living like that and therefore bypass acknowledging the sin. Or we go to God and say, God, I pray you forgive me for this, but I mean, I'm sure you understand what a struggle it is. Or God, maybe I shouldn't be doing this, but I've, I've been doing it so, so long. It's hard to break this habit. You've got to help me, but until you do, I guess I'll just keep on doing it. You know, it's, it's hard. And there's no acknowledgement of our sin. David comes before God and he says, God, I need mercy. And this is why, because I know I've sinned. My sin is ever before me. I acknowledge it. It's right there. There is no hiding it. There is no denying it. It is right there. Most of the time, uh, when working for Jason, I, I do really nice folk. But occasionally, in a moment of weakness, there will be a less than quality piece that comes off of my workbench. And it will enter a home at some great cost to Jason Moore. Um, and there have been sometimes he comes in and he says, uh, what's up with that cut? And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. Looks good to me. And, and sometimes he'll be like, all right, well, you can sand it and it'll be fine. And, and other times he's like, Tilly, you got to redo that, man. And for the remainder of the time that that piece happens to be in the house, my sin is ever before me. Every time I walk in, it's like, that table, good day. Somebody's got to fix that. And now um, there's people who have been working there less time than me. So when Jason says, uh, Tilly, you got to fix that cut. I'll be like, 
Dakota. You got to fix that cup, man. That looks terrible. And so I can get my sin out from in front of me. But until someone fixes it, my sin is ever before me. Less than quality piece right in there. The homeowner knows it. I know it. Jason knows it. Amy definitely knows it. And it's got to be fixed. Um, That's what David's saying here. He's like, my sin's ever before me. (laughs) I'm not trying to lie about it. There it is. Not a good cut. Needs to be fixed. It would do us good in our lives to say, God, I know I messed up. No excuse. No reason. I fell short of your standard. I made a mistake. And I'm asking for your mercy. It was a prayer for mercy. It was a prayer of acknowledgement. But it was a prayer of perception. Psalms 51, 5 and 6. Read them with me there. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, thou desirest truth in the inward poets, and in the hidden poet thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Here's what's happening. David's saying, look, in sin, I I was sinning in the womb. I was conceived in sin. I'm in sin. I know what you want for me. You want truth and, and to make me know wisdom. I'm over here, and here's what you want for me. And he recognized, God, I am a sinner. I was conceived in sin. I was born in sin. And the reason that we're talking right now is due to my sin. But, but you desirest truth in the inward poets and in the hidden poet thou shalt make me to know wisdom. Maybe I can illustrate it to you this way. Some of you may know and some of you may not, but you will hear shortly that I have a squirrel dog, and she is absolutely beautiful and dumb as a box of ox, okay? And when I say she's a squirrel dog, it's what she's supposed to be. Right now, she's a house dog and not even a good one of those. Um, So I I go and buy her, and she is the daughter of the world champion from 2018. So the bloodline is supposed to be good. And uh, she looked great as a puppy. I got her, and in the truck and I came home and I was super excited and I'm not sure if her failure is due to my lack of knowledge or due to her lack of comprehension but one of the, there's a big gap somewhere in there uh, because she's not performing well and so I get her home and I start training with her and now in my mind since I was a little kid I've always loved hunting squirrels I was doing it with pellet guns and 22 shotguns and, I, and it, there's like this challenge you're allowed to kill six a day and if I go in the woods I want to kill six and unless I fall like unless I get it I feel unaccomplished and kind of dumb I'm like wow well there's one for the squirrels and I lose one isn't enough two's not five's not enough it has to be six so I feel incomplete and as I was on Facebook, everybody with a dog is like going out and taking all their buddies and they're killing like 18 and 24. And I'm like, well, here we go. This is an easy solution. I'll buy a dog. I'll teach her to hunt. And then I'll always kill six and I always win. And so I got the dog. Now, my standard for the dog is I bought the daughter of the world champion in 2018 and won several other awards through years previous to that. And like one of the most decorated dogs perhaps ever in the sport. And so I'm like, this dog should go into the woods and find them. Bark, I'll come shoot them. This is not a big job. This is pretty simple stuff. This is my expectation for the dog. Now, let me tell you what has happened from September all the way up until uh, the middle of February. I got up, and I got my stuff, and I got in the truck. I miss good days deer hunting. I miss good days sleeping in. I miss good... I cut my finger off, and I got September off, and every day I was in the woods. Not one time has she boked at a squirrel. Not (laughs) one 
time, every day in the woods, before daylight, in the cold, in the wind, when I didn't care anymore, she doesn't bark. Okay, she is over here. And my expectation is over here. And between, it's like this huge gap between like the lousiest dog and what she's supposed to be a world champion over here. And this is maybe a, a funny but a true illustration of what David's saying is he's like, I'm over here. I was conceived in sin. And God, I know what you have for me. And I recognize what you have for me, God, but I'm in sin. And God, help me. Help me. Teach me wisdom in the inner part so, God, I can go from where I'm at to where you want me to be. A prayer of perception saying, God, I recognize that I'm not there yet. I pray you would help me. And then we see it's a prayer for restitution. A prayer for restitution. Psalms 51, verse number 7. And we'll read down through 10. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Hide thy face from my sins, and blot out all mine iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Here David begins to pray, and he says, God, I want you to make restitution. I recognize, God, my iniquity. I'm praying for your mercy. God, I know I'm not where you want me to be yet. I know that I'm a sinner. I was born in sin, God, and you want this for me. And I'm praying now, God, that you would allow or, or make for me restitution. The verse that perhaps most familiar out of this whole passage, created me a clean heart, oh God, and renew the right spirit. Then if you look in Psalms 51, 8, make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken, may rejoice. And David here says, God, restore me unto a right relationship with you. God, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. God, make me to hear joy that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. Again, what he's saying is, God, help me to be close to you again. I don't know if it's because this is the way humans work or if it's just something we assume, but... It is apparent that whenever we sin or fall short, more often than not, we feel that now we have to, in some way, re-appease a relationship with God. Like, whoops, I made a boo-boo. Now God's mad, and we pray for forgiveness. But it still feels almost like we have to do some penance or something to make him happy again. Like it's just too easy to make a boo-boo and then come right back, uh, right back to where we were at. But David here is saying, God created me a clean heart, and he knew a right spirit within me. And I think the reason he's praying this is because oftentimes Satan will use guilt over a sin that God has already forgiven to incapacitate you just as much as the sin would. You mess up and you go to God and you say, God, um, this was a mistake and I'm praying for your mercy. I'm not going to lie. It was a straight up mistake. God, I pray you forgive me. And then Satan holds guilt over your head and he holds regret over your head. And I, I, I cannot tell you the amount of people that I have seen waste years of their life 
out of guilt for something that God forgave years ago. And God is trying to get you back in the ministry, and he's saying, look, I, I can renew this relationship with you. You don't have to pay no penance. You don't have to do anything. I've forgiven you of it. Come back to me. I can renew a right spirit within you. Uh, David says here um, in, in verse number 8, make me to hear joy and gladness that the bones which thou hast broken may rejoice. God, renew this spirit in me, renew this relationship in me that I may feel close to you again, take this guilt away. And, and oftentimes the guilt does more damage to a Christian's life than the sin ever would have. We say, well, I'm not worthy anymore. I messed up. And Satan allows the guilt and the regret to hold us back more than the, the sin ever could. And here, David says, Created me a clean heart and, and renew a right spirit within me. God, that the bones that thou hast broken may rejoice again. Allow me, God, to have that close relationship with you. Sure, I messed up, but God, I'm asking for your mercy. Blot out my transgression. Allow me to come back before you in a right relationship so that this mistake doesn't impact the remainder of my life on the tome of my relationship with you. And I think we see that carrying over into our next point. Not only do we see a prayer for pardon, but we see a plea for presence. A plea for presence. First off, we see the presence of the Holy Spirit. Psalms 51, verse number 11. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Let me read that verse again. Cast me not away from thy presence, and take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Rewind. 2 Samuel 12. If you look at like verse, I'm pretty sure it's like 12 through 14 or 11 through 14. All that is listed there is Nathan saying, because of this, sword's never leaving your house. Your family's going to be fighting. Uh, God's taking your wives and giving them to your neighbor. Uh, the child is going to die. And so all this is going to happen. Now, mine is praying for the life of the child. David makes no request for the consequences not to come. He weeps for the life of the child. And then he sees his servants whispering. He says, child's dead, isn't he? And they're like, child's dead. And he gets up and he goes and worships the Lord. And that's it. But here, in the snapshot of the prayer, David makes one request. It's not, God, could you weaken the consequences a little bit? Uh, I made a good forgiveness, uh, I mean, a uh, repentance prayer here, so maybe don't take my wives or don't put the fighting in my house, either one, A or B. I could go either way. That's not what he does. He says, cast me not away from that presence. Take not that Holy Spirit from me. David was not worried about the consequences. He says, I wish the child could live, but I'm not worried about the consequences. God, I'm worried about your Holy Spirit and your presence leaving me. The consequences can come. I'll pay for my sin, and that's fine. God, publicly in front of the whole nation, you can make it known to them that I've done this wrong. Just don't take your presence from me. I feel like when we do something wrong, our first thought isn't, this is going to have an impact on my relationship with God. This could quench the Holy Spirit. I need to get this resolved so that my relationship with God suffers the least amount of impact. I don't know that that's what we think, but whether it's like, is anyone going to know? 
Is there any way that someone's going to see me? Did someone hear that? Did someone see that? No? I look good? Consequences are at a minimum. And if we have to do something, then we will aim our efforts at minimizing the consequences. Not David. David says, God, I know I've messed up. And my prayer is that you cast me not away from your presence and you take not your Holy Spirit from me, God. I am concerned above everything else. Take my nation, take my wives, take my family. I want to make sure that my relationship with you, that your presence doesn't depart from me. And, and I wonder if our life show that. Do we say, God, please don't take your presence. When I was in college, I met Danielle. In the speech class, you guys have heard this story, but before I met Danielle, I was in the bachelor club, okay? And this is where all the guys who can't find a girlfriend, whether it's freshman year or senior year squared, they, they can't find a girlfriend, they hang out in this club. There is no amount of time you can spend there. It's just until you get lucky, okay? And we do things like eat too much pizza, uh, watch the NFL draft, which could be perhaps the most boring thing to ever take place. Uh, we play football. We study and uh, for some of us we get good grades but this is like the bachelor club and I spent a, a large amount of time in this club and you develop really good friends in the bachelor club now here's the only problem with the bachelor club is that as those friends begin to find women then that is the only disqualifying factor for the bachelor's club so they're out and when they're out you, you lose some good friends that way because they go after women and I tell you what for like freshman year I'm like Really, guys, y'all going to leave the Bachelor Club for her? Come on now, man. Like, see, for her? And, I mean, I, I gave all these guys all kinds of mouth about the way that they would just leave, you know? Be like, yo, you want to go play football? Nah, man, I'm hanging out with so-and-so. Seriously. They'd be like, yeah, dude. And I'd be like, well, you know we got a game coming up? Yeah. So you don't want to practice? Nah. And I'm like, what? Okay. Uh, sure, practice isn't important anyway. Or, you know, the subject that you're weak in and you know this one node guy who was in the bachelor club just because, you know, he didn't have a girlfriend. And you're like, you want to study? And he's like, nope, I got a date. And you're like, how, first off, do you have a date and I don't? But second off, uh, wow, so I'll just get an F and that's it? And he's like, sorry, dude, find some other study date. And I'm like, okay, and so... When I was in the Bachelor Club, I was not an advocate for people leaving, and I lost some friends that way. And then I meet Danielle. And I go from being like, really, dude, just skipping football practice? Mm, well, we see what's important to you, to the coach being like, yo, where were you at football practice? I'd be like, uh, well, uh, <clears throat> well, I went to the comments to grab a coffee, and then I seen Danielle, so I didn't make it. And he'll be like, yeah, I noticed. So enjoy the seat on the bench this game. And be like, well, that's fine, actually. You want my Josie? Because then I don't have to come to practice at all. And my grades just... <laughs> because instead of studying what I was bad at, I was studying what she was bad at with her. Even if I wasn't in the class, I'm like sitting over here trying to wrap my brain around whatever topic because I wanted to be in her presence. It didn't matter about all the buddies I was losing, about all the friends I was losing, about all the games that the whole team was losing because I was giving minimal effort. It didn't matter because I wanted to be in her presence. And here David says, it doesn't matter what all I lose. 
I want to be in your presence, God. And I want to have your Holy Spirit with me. That's what's important. It doesn't matter what I lose. It doesn't matter, God, if, if the nation's at war. It doesn't matter, God, if my family's at war. If I lose my wife's God, I want to be in your presence. We see the presence of the Holy Spirit quickly now, the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Psalms 51, 12, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation and uphold me with thy free spirit. David says, God, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And God, right now, I can't uphold myself. So uphold me with thy free spirit. God, you uphold me and you help me through this because I can't right now. God, maybe the guilt, maybe the regret, maybe the loss of the child. God, I need you to uphold me in this, in this. I'll give you this example, but we're going to be late, so I hope it's worth it. Um, I was cutting a tree the other day for Jason, and I wasn't being intelligent about it. It was a big old tree stump. Like, I'm doing like this. This is not a big tree, okay? Like, a big old tree stump. And it was, uh, it was like right here, because it was on the side of a hill. So, like, on the back side of the hill, the tree stump was like right here. And then it split into three different red oak trees that went up, and they were all probably about maybe a little bit bigger than that, something like that. Um, and so I'm standing on the hillside, but then from the lower side, so if the tree stumps at head level, you can see it's like way up here. Um, and so I start cutting on the top side, and I got my, my saw out, uh, which it's broke now. So if any of you guys want to buy me a new uh, steel 461 with a wraparound handle, that would be great. Uh, I can set you up. Just send me the check, and I'll get it myself, actually. Probably be better. But uh, I was cutting the tree, and so I go to cut the first one, and I'm like leaning around the tree, something like this, cutting, and I cut up, and I cut the notch. I come back, and I'm, like, holding the saw up here, and I'm cutting. And the first tree goes and falls beautifully. I mean, I could have set a, a pop bottle down and smashed it flat with the tree. It was absolute beautiful cut. Not really due to me. It was just the Lord. It was a lucky cut. But the second one, I climb up on this tree stump now, and I'm reaching around trying to cut the second one. But I wanted to notch it at about the same level. So, like, I'm standing on this one down here trying to cut. And, and the saw that I'm using is not light. It's, it's a pretty heavy saw, and I'd already been cutting for most of the day. And I'm starting to get sore. And so then I, like, sat down on the tree stump, and I got the saw, like, all up in here. And I needed to wrap my notch around just a little bit more. It was, like, on this side, and I needed it to go around a little bit more, or the tree was going to try to fall back towards me. And so I'm like, ah, I got this. And I start leaning around the tree, cutting this notch in just a little bit more, trying to edge it around the tree. And th this tree's still here and this one, and this one's gone. So I can't get to it from this side. So I'm like leaning around. And as I'm leaning around, like my leg starts to cramp up, but there's not much you can do at this point. You're already leaned around the tree. You're making the cut. The saw is running wide open, getting sawdust in the face. You're just like, hurry up and finish it. And so that was kind of my mindset. Like, I'm like, hurry up and finish the cut. And so, like, I just lean over a little bit more, and I'm just trying to get the very tip of my bow to come around a little bit. And then it's like you realize, well, I'm going to fall now because my leg is cramping up, and I'm 12 foot in the air with a 460 on, wide open. And then, as I'm falling to my apparent death in the creek, probably going to get chopped in half by a chainsaw. Um, I feel Andrew, my co-worker, he just reaches up and grabs my belt and like pulls me back. I hadn't said anything to him or anything, but he grabs me, he pulls me back, and until I finish the cut, he sets there holding me on the tree. 
Now, to him, it probably didn't seem like much. He was probably thinking, what idiot is this trying to fall and kill himself with a chainsaw? So I'm going to grab hold of him and hold him up. But to me, I was like, he's holding me up. I can't do this right now. I cannot finish this cut unless somebody does it. And Andrew grabbed my belt and held me up. David here is saying, God, right now I need you to hold me up. I'm falling off the tree. I'm going to cut myself with a chainsaw. Please just hold me up. With your free spirit, God, hold me. Give me the joy of the salvation again. So we see a prayer for Poden. And then we see a plea for God's presence. And then I'll give you this point and I'll leave the other two off. We'll come back to them some other time. A promise of performance. God, please forgive me. Please don't take your presence from me. And then David says, God, as you do this, this is what I'm going to do. Let me show you these two verses quickly, quickly, and I don't want to take you guys late. I don't want my service to be the most hated one ever. So let's make it quick. Uh, Psalms 51, 13, David, Then will I teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners shall be converted unto thee. David says, look, God, when you, when you forgive me and, and you keep me in your presence, God, and you, you renew unto me the joy of salvation and you uphold me with your spirit, God, when I can't, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to teach transgressors thy way. Now, caveat for all of you guys. You've already been forgiven. If you're saved tonight, then you've already been forgiven. So to, by application, loan from the prayer of David, we should be teaching transgressors the way of the Lord. Here's, here's what I hear. Y'all ready for this? This is probably going to astound you. You've probably never heard this before in your life, but I've heard it, so I'm going to share it with you. Uh, I hear people say that, well, Americans just aren't receptive to the gospel anymore. You know, like, I try, but really wants to hear about Jesus right now. Or they're not getting saved the way they used to. People just aren't coming to Jesus the way that I wish that people would be more interested in the things of the gospel and David says, then will I teach transgressors thy way, which we should be doing. But look what he says. And sinners shall be converted unto thee. Okay. When I teach transgressors thy way, sinners will be converted. This is like an A equals B. Okay. Two plus two is always four. When Christians teach sinners, there will be converts every time. The lack of people coming to Christ, the lack of church growth, the lack of seeing converts is in large part due to Christians not sharing versus lost people not receiving. In my experience, maybe y'all had different experience. In my experience, the amount of people I get to lead to the Lord is directly related to the amount of times I try. Um, and, and I'm sure the same is true for you. If I give one effort a year, then I may see one convert a year. If I give one effort a day, dare I say I would see hundreds of converts a year. But oftentimes it's, well, I tried and... They said no, so I guess I'm out now. And you're like, well, I don't know anyone else to tell the gospel. If that's you, just stop. Because if you genuinely don't know anyone who could use the gospel, then share the gospel with someone you don't know. Because they're lost all around us. And David says, God, 
if you forgive me, God, if, if you uphold me, I'm going to tell transgressors about you, and sinners will be, guaranteed, they will be converted. Some sow, some water, but God giveth the increase. That equation only works if some are sowing and some are watering. I, I used the statement last time I was preaching, but I, I feel like I'll use it again because I think it applies here. When it comes to giving the gospel, I feel like a lot of times we give minimum effort into it and expect God to give us maximum expectation. We're like taking one seed and putting it in the ground and one drop of water on top of it, and then we're like, okay, God, grow me a whole cornfield here. And when it doesn't happen, we lose interest. David says, God, because of your forgiveness, because you're willing to uphold me, I'm going to do my job to tell others about you. And tonight, I'm going to stop right there because, again, I don't want to keep you guys late and y'all be like, oh, great, Aiden's preaching again. So let's uh, bow our heads, close our eyes, and go to the Lord in prayer tonight. God, I want to thank you for the fact that every time we sin, God, we can come to you and you will forgive us. But I pray that we never allow your mercy to become commonplace, God, or to become so familiar with us that we just expect it. And then, God, as a result of expecting your mercy, we normalize sin and forget what an impact it has on you and that your son had to die for it. God, I pray that your presence would be most important to us. As Tim Thompson said, God, in the revival, the relationship with Jesus Christ is the most important thing. And may we invest in that as though it is the most important thing. And God, as a result of those things, may we share the gospel with those around us. Thank you for the opportunity to preach tonight. Thank you for the kids and the beautiful song. What a blessing it was to me, God. Be with us as we go home. Help us to love you more. And in Jesus' name.